All right, friends, turn with me, if you have a copy of God's Word, to the book of Colossians. Book of Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. We're going to be finishing up our our series in Colossians we've been tracking through um, for several months now. Uh, Next week, so you've heard us uh, read the remainder of chapter 4 already in our time, our scripture reading this morning. Uh, But this morning we just want to pull one of these guys, uh, these characters, out of this story that Paul addresses toward the end of his letter and look at his life. Um, So so that's what we're going to do today as we wind down our series. But uh, again, let me say Happy Father's Day to everyone in the room, especially you dads out there and granddaddies. uh, So thankful for you. Let me remind us of what uh, I believe with all my heart. God's Word tells us and sets us to be kind of the standard as we look at the life of Christ and the kind of man that He was. So Jesus, fully God, but fully man, shows us what it means to really walk in true manhood and the pattern set in, the, in all of Scripture, the, the charge that he gives uh, to men. Men is equal to um, the ladies in the room. In no way um, more significant or more valuable. But there is a charge of responsibility placed on the man. A charge of leadership placed on the men in this room, especially those who um, are charged as husbands and fathers uh, in this room. And so I love this definition of manhood that I heard from somebody uh, a long time ago, and it stuck with me. Um, it says, taking, manhood is taking initiative for the flourishing of others. Taking initiative, so taking responsibility, being first in line on the front lines of the battle, not hiding in fear in the backgrounds. Taking initiative for the flourishing of others, even when at great cost to yourself. So some would call that sacrificial servant leadership. That, and it's true for all of us as believers, by the way. The call to follow Jesus is to come and die. And as we die, we find our life in the, the flourishing and the joy of other people. But that's especially true for the men in this room. That we would lead in that charge that is responsible for everybody throughout history. That the men would be the first, the examples of what that looks like. Um, even if it costs us everything. That we would lead and show the glory of our God that as Joel so beautifully prayed, is our Father that makes no mistakes. And um, So we want to grab one of these guys. And so what Paul does at the end of this letter, it's interesting because he's been writing this letter to the church at Colossae and he's telling them about how good Jesus is. Basically, is the whole thesis of Colossians, that he's better. He's better. That's why we got it written out there on our wall. Jesus is better. That's why we sing it. Jesus is better. That's why we're going to remind us all of that every single week when we gather in here as we scatter to live life in community. We remind one another that Jesus is everything. The glories of Christ. Gaze at Jesus. When you see Jesus, everything else falls into its rightful, rightful place. And so he's been arguing about who Jesus is. And that if you really do encounter Jesus and see the beauty of Jesus, everything changes. Everything. So we've been walking, chapter 3, about what it looks like if you have been risen with this Christ, the Jesus who conquered our greatest enemy. Therefore, he's conquered that in you. And whatever is overwhelming you today, he's already overwhelmed. It's a good way to say amen. I know we're Southern Baptists, but like we can say amen sometimes, right? Like he is, we are more than conquerors in him. Why? Because he is the conqueror. We are strong, but it's in the midst of our weakness because he is strong. Like, that's who he is. So if you know Jesus, we have hope. Everything should look different. The way we see our families and our jobs and the way we fight sin, all these things we've been talking about. But he ends this letter by addressing men. He just lists off all these guys that he knows in his ministry. So next week, we're going to take a lot of those guys and just see what we can understand from the rest of the stories of Scripture 
who are these guys? What can we learn from their examples as Paul is using them as partners in ministry? But today, we want to pull out one guy that he mentions in verse 7 of Colossians 4. Verse 7. Let's read that again um, together. Actually, verse 9. We'll just skip it for the sake of time since we read it earlier. But verse 9 says, And with him, that Tychicus, with him Onesimus. Onesimus. And look what he says about Onesimus. That Onesimus is our faithful and beloved brother, which is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So who is this guy, Onesimus? So you read this dude's name, like, man, it's kind of hard to say and weird. And like, why is this in Scripture? So we believe that all Scripture is inspired by God, from the mouth of God, even the ends of the letters that we're tempted to skip in our quiet times because we feel like it doesn't apply to us. And so who is Onesimus? And what I love about just the tension that's created here is what Paul says about him, is that he's faithful and that he's a beloved brother and that he's one of you. I mean, he's a genuine part of the church. You say, okay, Derek, why is that awesome? Why does that make you excited? Well, if we understand who Onesimus is, like he's the last person that should be called faithful because he was not faithful in his life. And he's the last person that should be called beloved because he didn't act too lovely in his life. And so before we jump into the context of his story that we just read from Philemon, I just want to, again, unhitch for a second, talk to our men uh, for a second. So many men in our generation, our culture, it's not just our generation, our culture has been throughout history, um, are wounded. Um, so many of our men are fearful. Um, and a lot of that wounds and the fears that we have, I think, is rooted out of fear. <laughs> we're afraid. You say, oh, we're not afraid. John Wayne, right? We go and kill Dirty Harry. We go kill the men, right? Kill all of our enemies. Be strong. Don't show weakness. But we're afraid if we really were honest with ourselves. A lot of that fear is coming from an insecurity that's deep down. A lot of our men may kind of ascribe insecurity to our female friends here. Um, the truth is, we're all insecure. Um, I'm probably one of the most insecure people you'll ever meet in your life. I really am. God's been showing me even more of how deep that goes in my heart. Um, we're always wondering if we're adequate. Can I get a witness? Some of you guys shake your head at me if I'm not out in left field. Okay, thank you for that. I'm going to feel all lonely up here. So thank you for uh, at least affirming me, even if you don't believe it. Um, uh, I, I'm insecure. See, I need it. That's a case in point. Um, we're, we're so afraid of not being enough. We're so afraid, what if I do take initiative for the flourishing of others by a great cost to myself? What if at the end of the day, that's not enough? What if it's still lacking? What if I failed so much and I've been failed against and I've seen them all? I don't know if I got what it takes. And we're so afraid. And so that's true for our ladies too. But um, so many of us are just wondering, wounded, not really knowing if we're qualified to serve Jesus. And what I want us to see, hopefully we walk out of here, is to see the restoration, transformative power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this guy is called faithful and beloved and included in the bride of Christ. And especially if we see what he's done, that, listen, because of Jesus, we are never out. Meaning, we're never finished. We're never hopeless. There's always hope. It's never as bad as it seems. It is as bad as it seems, but there's another reality coming over that reality of our inadequacy. Because the truth of the matter is, we probably are inadequate. We probably are not what it takes we probably, our fears, probably some of them are reasonable. But Jesus is better and he's stronger. So who is this guy? What's his story? What does it mean for us? So here's the story that we just read uh, from the scripture. So 
uh, Philemon. So if you guys will turn there, we're done with Colossians 4. So Philemon, let's flip over, and um, we're going to be 25 verses, and I honestly have never really studied the depths of this book until this week, preparing for this sermon, and it is absolutely gorgeous, uh, this book. Uh, it is glorious what is happening in this book. So I want us to look at it. So here's, here's the story of Philemon in a nutshell. So the guy that Paul's writing to, that bears, the book bears his name, Philemon, was a wealthy man that was a leader in the church of Colossae. So we've been reading this letter that Paul's writing to the church at Colossae, and Philemon was one of the leaders of this church. And he's uh, letting part of the church meet in his house. And that's why we know he's probably pretty wealthy, is he's got a house. And so, the, again, very little church was gathering like this. They were gathering in homes. And so Philemon is hosting the church at Colossae and is a leader in uh, that church. He's likely been led to Jesus by Paul on one of Paul's former missionary journeys. So he's indebted to Paul. Paul um, and Philemon know each other well. You can see that throughout this letter. They have a good relationship together because uh, Philemon didn't know Jesus. Paul shares the gospel with Philemon. Philemon meets Jesus. Philemon has changed and now is a leader in the church in Colossae. So Paul uh, is writing to him from house arrest in Rome, in jail. Okay, so he's been writing this whole letter that we've been reading for months. He's repenting that from prison. So he's writing to his buddy Philemon, uh, this wealthy church leader in Colossae. So then Onesimus. So who is Onesimus? How's he interacting in this story? So we find Onesimus uh, in Philemon that he was one of Philemon's slaves. So again, we know Philemon's wealthy because he likely had many slaves in his, his household. And Philemon has stolen, or, or Onesimus rather, has stolen something from Philemon. So we don't know what, but stolen a bunch of valuable things. And he's fled Philemon's house and his job and his, um, his obligations and fled to Rome to hide. And really, Onesimus is uh, living as a homeless person in Rome. And it just so happens, from the sovereignty and the providence and the grace of God, is that Onesimus meets Paul. And we know Paul is just like a gospel beast, right? Okay, and so... Paul is sharing the gospel with Onesimus, and Onesimus meets Jesus, and he's saved. From, so we don't know what, if he was in prison or if he met Paul in other ways, but he meets Paul while in Rome and meets Christ. And so he and Paul strike up a friendship. Onesimus begins to be a servant of Paul, even in the gospel, and serving him in some ways. And so then we pick up this story that what Paul is writing to his buddy Philemon and saying, hey, listen, I know this guy is stolen from you, and I know he's ran, and you're probably pretty mad at him. <laughs> Rightfully so, but I need you to take him back. So he's going to write this letter inspired by the Holy Spirit and send that with um, Onesimus back into Colossae. So he tells Onesimus, go back home and give him this letter from me. And, and he's going to read it and we'll see what he, how he responds to this message of reconciliation. So Paul's writing, he said, I know what he's done against you, but I need you to forgive him and restore it. Tracking with me? That's the story of what's happening here. So before we jump into all that that means for us, I want to take a quick aside because I've said this like twice in our series and I keep feeling very like I'm avoiding something and I'm not. So I'm just going to take the time to address this. Is we've seen in Colossians a lot, this, this uh, conversation about bond servants and slaves. And I've said over and over again that the Bible does not condone slavery. Uh, so many of my unbelieving friends and people, um, even in the church, kind of looks at this and goes, What's happening here? There's so much in Scripture, especially in the New Testament letters, where Paul seems to just condone slavery. And obviously we know throughout even our American history that we, uh, and we want to be a church that is for racial reconciliation and for unity in the body of Christ. And um, Slavery does not 
uh, is not part of God's design. It is a wicked evil, and racism is, is evil. It is, it's evil. So we want to speak out against that. And there's people that use letters like Philemon, even back in our American history, that used this letter to condone the atrocities that was the slavery uh, of, of our country. So we want to say, is, no, 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 it's not the case. And so we can't preach a sermon on this today, maybe later. But what I want to do is three things of why I believe that this is not condoning slavery. First, is bondservant in the Scriptures. When you see the word bondservant or slave, um, it's nothing close to comparing to our current understanding of slavery. It's all the abuse and the, the, the evil and the hate that when we conjure up the image, imagery of slavery, and rightfully so, it is that heinous and that evil. Uh, that is not what we see here. Uh, you may have heard the uh, title of indentured servanthood. It's much like what's happening here. So what would happen was people in that day would become so poor from whatever happened in life through um, famine, war, hard knocks, and they could not survive. So they would sell their labor uh, as a means of survival. And so, yes, it was a form of slavery. They did belong to their master, but in many ways, bond servants, um, indentured servants, were in many ways seemed like family. They had a seat at the table, and they were um, really, really valued uh, in that day. So no doubt there was outliers where there was abuse of the bond servants. Uh, no doubt that was the case. Uh, and even in this model, it's less than God's ideal. It's not what God would design, but it's nothing compared to what we see uh, today, more of like a boss employer type thing. Second, Scriptures subverts the premise of slavery over and over and over again. You see in Exodus, laws that's protecting slaves from abuse, um, condemning slavery uh, in the Old Testament. Um, all the admonitions of Christ to love our neighbors ourselves and do unto others as you would have them do unto, uh, do unto you and treat one another as family. Colossians 4.1, uh, an admonishment to the owners of bondservants to do so in a way that uh, is gentle and not abusive in any way. Um, the parallel of Scripture that says we are all slaves to sin. So there's no longer bondservant or free, male or female, but we are now one in Christ. This unity that he's purchased for us. So clearly Scripture is against um, slavery and the principles that would fuel slavery. But lastly, God's remedy is not political reform, but an internal transformation beginning with the church. So he doesn't say, Paul doesn't tackle abolishment of slavery. He never does that. You never see him do it. Matter of fact, he's telling a slave to go back and be a slave. Why would he do that? Even though it's not the same as what we would look at today, I think Scripture would be clear to eradicate slavery. I don't think that's what we pull from this at all. But he said, hey, go back and instead live a transformed life. And so what you see throughout the pattern of Scripture is that slavery is abolished, not from top-down uh, political reform, although that definitely is, there's a place for that, but rather internal heart transformation from the inside out. When the church begins to be changed, slavery will eventually, the policies will begin to be changed because that's what God does. So he's always after transforming people rather than just policies and a way of life. And so he doesn't tackle slavery in that culture, but he tackles the principles of it by a transformed heart that's only able by the gospel. So again, if you have more questions, let's talk. Uh, but man, Scripture, God has a heart for all peoples and there's, uh, is, this is not to be used to condone slavery. So I've been shirk it over it because I didn't want to take that five, six minutes to do it in a sermon before. Uh, but man, that is the way I think is helpful to go, to go ahead in this, all right? Uh, but if you have more questions, let's chat about that. So we got to ask, though, this is a very personal letter. So maybe when you, we were reading it earlier, you listen to this and go, why are we reading this in church <laughs> right now? Like, why are we reading a personal letter from Paul to one guy in an old church that's no longer in existence 
talking about some slave and this personal, almost like a personal encounter of like, hey, you need to reconcile with this brother. It seems like it shouldn't make itself into scripture. Why is this in the canon? Why do we see that this is inspired by God, intended for us to read in the church uh, today? So these will be up on the screen. Here's what I think. I think this letter is meant to be a tangible, real life picture. It's an illustration that actually happened of real people to say, hey, I want you to see God's heart. God's saying, I want you to see my heart for you as my people. What's, your, what's God's heart for us, his people? Well, part of it is to be his people, to live in reconciliation. To live in reconciliation. There might not be no division among the body of Christ. That's local expressions of the church at Tri-Cities, Johnson City, here. But it's among the broader expression of the church, universal, global. That there might be no division, no animosity, no anger, no, no unnecessary disunity. Because if we don't live in unity, we're saying something about God who is unified in the Trinity. So if you live as divided, what are you saying about God? So he said, I want my people to live in reconciliation and with harmony with one another. See, that's not been my experience in the church. Well, it's not been mine either, sadly, to say, in many cases. Uh, and I look across the landscape, why are there so many denominations? And we can't just do that. And I, listen, I, I think there needs to be differences. <laughs> we need to draw the lines and say, we differ from you here and here. But those differences should not be areas of division for those who are real followers of Christ. Um, so he wants us to live reconciled. Well, how's that possible? Well, through radical forgiveness. So if we're actually going to be reconciled, it implies that we're going to sin against each other, that we're going to, we have this evil in our hearts, and there's going to be divisions, there's going to be strifes, there's going to be rifts, and there's going to be hurts. And I'm just going to be entirely honest, some of my deepest hurts have come through the local church. Anybody with me on that? I know you, I know your stories, and so I know that's the case. Um, so many of us are still kind of keeping the church at arm's distance because we've been deeply hurt and wounded by the church. And so there's a call to radical forgiveness in the body of Christ. And this is what Philemon, it's not the only place that says this, but he's given us a whole book in the Bible to show us a real life example because I think so often we can hear commands of like, hey, forgive as God has forgiven you in Christ. We hear commands like, hey, love your enemies. Bless those who persecute. Bless those who pick up guns and shoot mass shootings. Love them. Forgive them. Love the people that we would call terrorists. And Man, what do we do with that? And that's in no way being trite and saying that things don't matter. We shouldn't weep and be angry. Yes, yes, yes. But there's a call to say forgive. So we can hear that and go, okay, yeah, I know. But you don't know my story. You don't know the hurts that I've had. That seems so far removed from real life that we know it's true because it's in the Bible, but honestly, we struggle with it. So what God's done is he's given us a picture of a real-life relationship to say, no, 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 this really, um, these principles aren't just some arbitrary commands that can't be obeyed. And what is at stake here if we don't is is massive. Um, So he's given us a picture of what reconciliation and radical forgiveness looks like in the body of Christ through this story. So I want us to pull five truths. And I know you're going to get nervous going, man, five? Really? Ah, oh, we have Father's Day lunch. Hope you pack some cookies, okay? Because, <laughs> all right, five truths. Let's go quick. Here's the first one that I think we can pull out from this story. Restoration, namely relationships and 
restored from all of our past. Listen, must begin. There's no option. So we can't move on to the other stuff that we're talking about today if we don't foundationally begin here. Must begin with bringing the hurts from the darkness of our past. All right, listen. Is that true of any of us? Do we have some hurts? <laughs> They're way down deep in the darkness of our past. Well, we've got to bring those into the light of the present. With the Word of God, the grace of God. So here's what's happening in this story. Now, I can't spend too much time on this, but listen. We see Paul. Paul is acting as a peacemaker. He is choosing, out of love, to risk the relationship to maintain unity in the body of Christ. And he's acting as a peacemaker between these two brothers. You know how easy it would have been for Paul to stay out of it? Philemon's way over there. This guy, I can't keep him. No big deal. But he sees division and knows that if we don't bring this to light, if we don't deal with this, he's never going to be able to really move on. I must keep unity. We see Paul bringing hurts into the light. Well, then Onesimus. Think about Onesimus. We know this story because Onesimus must have confessed his sin to Paul. Ultimately to God because God restores him and he's saved. But he told Paul, but hey man, listen, you know I'm here. There's this guy named Philemon. I stole from him and I ran. That's why I'm here. And then just in sovereignty and a happenstance, Paul goes, I know Philemon. Right? You can imagine Onesimus going, really? I'm in Rome and this guy, <laughs> this guy knows the dude I sinned against. Like, you want to be kidding me. How does that work? But you see Onesimus owning his sin, confessing it, bringing it into the light. And listen, he risked his life to go back. He could look to Paul and said, no, bro, ain't no way. I'm taking that letter back to that guy and asking for him to, rest- to forgive me and restore me. I ain't doing that. He can kill me. <laughs> I'm not doing it. So he just runs and leaves Paul. That could very easily happen, but he doesn't. Philemon gets the letter because Onesimus brought it uh, to him. It shows true repentance. Not just something he said that he's repenting of his sin. But listen, Onesimus is willing to do whatever it takes to make it right. Big deal. Onesimus bringing it into the light. Listen, he humbly faced the fear of humiliation and rejection. I mean, imagine Onesimus standing there, number one, walking in Philemon's house. Put yourself in those shoes. I'm back. Hey, bud. Listen to this from Paul. Like, you know, like... Paul said this, read what Paul said before you respond to me being in your house right now. And as he stands there waiting, what's he going to do? Is he going to reject me? Is he going to kill me? Is he going to make me? What's going to happen? And to see the tension here of the the relationship. And then you have Philemon. Again, this dramatic moment where how's he going to respond to this brother who's wronged him and is now back and this admonition to forgive? What's he going to do? How's he going to react? And isn't it true for all of us today? So many of us, how do we respond when people hurt us? And when we're confronted with the charge to forgive and to restore. So many of you already are kind of just checking out on me right now and going, I'm not going to say anything else he says because he's going to tell me at the end of this to forgive whomever it is in my life, and I just can't do that. If I leave him at that that juncture, that crossroad right here, what's he going to do? face-to-face with the guy who's wronged him. How does he respond? So listen, I know, I know, so many of us are wounded and hurt from our past. Maybe it was one statement that was made to you decades ago, and you can't get over it. From a dad who walked out, or a 
somebody who's abusive to you or a sin that somebody lied against you or you watched the, maybe it wasn't even against you, you just watched all of the heinousness in a church. Anybody with me on that? Seeing all the brokenness and go, how in the world could this be real? Just refuse to forgive. You see, you may have been wronged by somebody of a different ethnicity or somebody from a different race, whatever uh, frame of reference, and you've put all hate for all peoples of that type because one person sinned against you. That's just true for so many of us. We have deep, deep wounds. And listen, I'm convinced we don't even realize how deep and dark they go. We know that. We know we're hurt. We know we got some. I don't think we've really come to grips. But what this story wouldn't be in the Bible if these three guys didn't do what they did, an owning of it. And so you've heard it said before, the first step to solving a problem is admitting you have one. But there's some wisdom in that. But what do you do when you're confronted with the deep, dark hurts? Maybe it's the sin. And it's, listen, some of us are Onesimus, and we're so broken down because we've been the ones who've sinned against somebody else. And we're so shamed, and we're so guilt, and we're saying, God's done with me because I was the one who was inflicting the pain. I was the one in the midst of that church. I was the one that did the stupid thing that caused the affair, that broke up the marriage. That was me that did that, and God's never going to restore me. I'm the one that's made a mess of it all. I'm the one that's done the sin against. And so I think so often we're a mix of both. We have been deeply sinned against and we are deeply sinful. So what do we do when we're confronted with it? Um, psychologists and others would say with typically two categories of response. One would be just aggressive. You say, vengeance is mine, I will repay. <laughs> Scripture says, thus says the Lord. But we say, no, 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 God, I can do a better job of getting that person back. So it's a retaliation. It's like, I'm not going to let that person go on this. They're going to pay. So whether that's gossip and slander or violence even, that's why God says if you, you say that if you hate your brother, you've killed them. So I ain't killed anybody, but have you hated your brother? Because that emotion goes to that at the end of the day. Um, so many of us are just aggressive. I'm going to make that person pay for the last thing I do. I'm going to prove myself. Prove aggressive or some of us are avoiders i think a lot of us in this room will probably fall into that category is that we avoid conflict um, so here's what this looks like we run so when it gets hard you get hurt again you bounce like this church hurt me the last four churches hurt me so i'm out this relationship i thought this person was different and they hurt me so i'm out um, so we just go from job to job to job, church to church to church, relationship to relationship to relationship, looking. But the problem follows us because in many ways we are part of the problem. And the brokenness around us isn't going to get fixed by another church. It's, so we run, non-committal, or we avoid it. We just stay busy. It's the proverbial, la, 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 to my hurts. <laughs> I don't want to admit that, I, that I'm hurt. And we just avoid it. And some of us are leakers. What? Yeah, leakers. That you're not going to be the, pass, the, the aggressor, but your aggression is passive-aggressive in that you just get a little sarcasm here, a little blunt here. And so much so, they're like, man, are you being serious right now? And you're like, no, nah, man, I'm joking. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. But deep down, it's like, there's some truth to it. Like, it's just, just enough of a jab. Right? Anybody with me on that one? That's me. I'm, I'm bad at this one. This is, this, is, this is all my wife's going, yes, it is. Right? Yeah. Um, just so sarcastic. I, I call it wit, but it's not wit. It's sin. Uh, <laughs> sin uh, sarcasm is not a spiritual gift I claim that it is but it's not uh, 
avoiding conflict with the person that's hurting you and has hurt you in the past. Okay, so listen, we will never experience true freedom until we acknowledge our bondage to past hurt. Got to bring it into light. The wounds that go deep. Like some of you know they're there. You know they're there, and you've got to choose what to do to do with them. Some of us don't even know that they're there, and I'm praying the Holy Spirit Spirit will show us just how deep this goes. But here's the second one. Restoration is defined, motivated, and sustained only by the gospel of the grace of Christ. Let me say it again. Restoration is defined. You want to know what it's like? Go look at the gospel. It's motivated. How in the world are we going to deal with this? Only by the gospel of Christ. And it is sustained. How can we keep doing it when we're seeking reconciliation and restoration and it still blows up in our face and those people continue to hurt us? How are we going to keep on keeping on only by the gospel of the grace of Christ? How do we see that in Philemon? Look at verse 3. This is not just an introduction that we can move on from. It's true. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Real quick, let's just break this down. We know these things. We talk about these things every week. But I want you to hear it in context of seeking restoration in our, in our lives and our relationships. Listen, our relationship with God is entirely free. We tracking? We say amen to that? Give some class participation. This is a hard sermon, so make me, make me feel loved. Uh, our relationship with God is entirely free. So he says, grace to you. You didn't earn it. You didn't earn it. <laughs> Nothing you did made God love you. Are we tracking on that? It's grace. Undeserved favor. But then he says peace. So listen, our relationship with God makes us perfectly whole. This is the idea of peace being shalom. Not just the absence of conflict, but the presence of holistic flourishing. Right? So he's saying, hey, because of what God's done for you, he showed grace and there's peace to you. You can be healed and whole to the depths of who you are. That is what the gospel promises so entirely free he makes us perfectly whole uh, but he says god our father listen our relationship with god is more like family than prison don't we see that that way though we feel so in bondage and god seems like a taskmaster that's telling us what to do tell us not what to do and we don't see him as father loving gentle father or we ascribe all the hurts of and the mess ups of our father onto him and assume that he's this way but what if he really is good that we just say he's good and so it's more of like loving acceptance in a family than it is a prison. That's what it means to be part of God's family. But then he says, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our relationship with God is defined by allegiance to our Savior King. What it means to follow Him, to have a relationship with Him, is yeah, to be, man, God loves me apart from what I do, and He makes me fully whole, and He accepts me. I'm adopted as His son and His daughter. That is the beauty of the gospel. And then it defines how we live. He's our Lord. We submit to Him. And he's our Savior. He did it for us. So he's Lord and he's Christ. So, and that is the foundation of the gospel and what it means to know him. So listen, we will never pursue reconciliation apart from first being reconciled to God. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's the foundation. He's going to talk to Philemon about restoring and doing the unthinkable of forgiving and going the extra mile, all those things that we would look at and go, there ain't no way that's possible. And I think Paul would look at us and go, you're right, it's not. Unless this gospel's true. Do you realize what has happened to you? So he's writing to a man who's been forgiven and loved and redeemed. 
How in the world do we seek restoration? Because that's when he says, we cannot, um, oh, well, verse 4 and 5, let's read that. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus. He says, Philemon, I'm going to ask you to do the unthinkable, to restore and reconcile and forgive this brother who's wronged you. But it's rooted out of, I know something about you. Your heart has been changed. This is not just some, oh, I'm, Jesus told me to forgive, and if I'm a Christian, I've got to forgive. That is not what's happening here. It is. Listen, your heart has been transformed radically by the grace of God in Christ. You are whole, Philemon. You're at peace with God. You are his son, and he loves you. He loves you. He likes you. <laughs> He's not going to walk out on you. And that you said you surrender to his lordship, and he does command you to obey, but it's because of out of his acceptance for you. So Philemon, I know that you have a transformed heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. You have faith toward Jesus. It's going to change and motivate what's going to happen here. So he goes on, verse 5, because I hear of your love for all the saints. So we cannot be right with God if we're not right with one another. Man, I'm going to say that again because that has been convicting me. There's another place in the scriptures that Jesus says, if you do not ask for forgiveness from your father, and live with and forgiveness from other people, God will not forgive your sins. I, I, man, I, I'm a grace guy, and I don't even know how to, to answer that sometimes. But what does that mean? That like, if we don't choose to forgive the people in our lives, then God won't forgive us. Is that some works-based salvation? I think what it's saying is, if you really have experienced the forgiveness of God in Christ, how can you not extend? So if you refuse to extend forgiveness and grace to other people, it's showing that you don't have the forgiveness, you never experienced the forgiveness of God in the first place. It's a heavy, heavy word. And so he writes to Philemon and says, I know you have love toward other people. You're seeking to maintain this kind of unity. First John 4 says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. I didn't say that. John said it. <laughs> For he who does not love his brother whom he is not, who is seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God, what's the next two words, church? What's it say? Must also. Ain't, I mean, there's no room for, like, for disagreement here. Must also love his brother. You say, well, what about the guys that have hurt me? What about the guys that do not deserve my love? What about the ones who wronged me deeply? Well, he says in verse 6a, he says, I pray, following in 6a, I pray that the sharing of your faith, the sharing of your faith does not mean evangelism here. The sharing of your faith is this word koinonia. It's the Greek word for fellowship. And this word fellowship doesn't mean we have potlucks together like we had last week. Amen, glory to God, potlucks, amen. That's not fellowship. Fellowship, it is fellowship, but fellowship goes much deeper. Fellowship is the idea of the word participation. Meaning, listen, you are a, a participant of Jesus with me. And I'm a participant of Jesus with you. That is the bond that binds us together. You say, well, these people have hurt me. I don't have anything in common with these people. I'm going to keep on. Listen, we are one in Christ. He's purchased that. And so to say I'm not going to be one with that person, but I'm going to be odds at that person, is to deny the reality of what God has done for us in Christ, to make us, we are connected. And the word koinonia goes even so deep, listen to this, that says, I should love the person that wrongs me in the same way that I love the person that I'm closest to in the church. It's to say this idea, of James calls it no partiality. That I'm to see every person under the standing of Christ, who Christ is. 
not what they've done to me or if I like them. Or So we tend to kind of congregate toward the people that are similar to us. Cornelius says, I'm committed just as much to that person that gets under my skin more than anybody. Just as much as I am to this person over here that has everything in common with me and we're besties. <laughs> Not because you try really hard, but because Christ has died and, and has made this a reality. I've got to keep going. The result of this, in verse 7, Paul says, I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. This is the result. This is what happens when you live this way, is that people's hearts are refreshed. This is the idea that our hearts get stale. And when we love this way, and our faith in Christ, and our love for one another, and this koinonia fellowship that we're experiencing, at all costs, it refreshes our hearts. It stirs us up to say this is true. So are you that type of person? You say, people are refreshed when they're around me. They love Jesus more because of my influence in their life. I'm modeling the gospel to them. How do we become this type of person? I love this. Look at verse 6b, the last part of it. Here's how how Philemon was this kind of person. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective. That word effective is powerful. It's going to do its job. All right? Well, how's how's faith in Christ going to do the job? For the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. And here's what God's been convicting me about the last couple weeks. I read this book while I was at um, the beach on vacation with my family, and it just wrecked me in all the right ways. I'm going to be a little um, cheesy. Can I be cheesy? You're always cheesy. I know. Um, Think iceberg. Okay, you all know what an iceberg is, see the images, you've probably seen it in counseling class or whatever, but hang with me. Um, there's, there's a little bit that's above the surface of the water, right? You can see. So you know to avoid the iceberg over, over there. But we know about icebergs is what? Most of the iceberg is where? Under the surface. And so this guy in this book argues for this. He says, so much of our discipleship in the church, when we talk about following Jesus, is we focus on what we can see above the water. He said, some of our churches understand that that's not sufficient. It's not just a list of things you're supposed to go do for Jesus. Okay? So, yeah, there is a list like that. (laughs) And we do want to call you to that because it matters. But that's not, the gospel does transform that, but it goes deeper below the surface. But he says that most of our discipleship and our understanding of the gospel just hits about 10% beneath the surface. So maybe we say, hey, it's more than just about what we do. We say out here all the time, we care more about who you're becoming than what you're doing. We really do believe that. It's more about you, transformed as a person, rather than just being busy. But he says, we just stop at about 10% when there's, let's say, 90% of our soul underneath the surface that we've never, ever linked how the gospel of Jesus Christ goes down to those deep places of our hearts. Because of that, we walk away frustrated and say, hey, this Jesus thing didn't work. I tried everything. I came to the Bible studies. I served. I went to the nations. I gave, and I read my Bible, and I'm all that stuff, but yet there's just something missing. It doesn't seem real, and we walk away from the church, or we stay in the church, and we just try really hard, or we stay in the church, and we just get bitter and checked out and jaded and cynical. Anybody with me on that one? It's been my journey over the last five years. But he says, what if this gospel of Jesus Christ goes down into the deep, dark corners of the areas and your emotions and your responses that you didn't even know was there? Do you understand how the gospel changes and transforms those spots? Have you ever brought it out and allowed the gospel to to do those things? So he says to, to us, this word of full knowledge is this word of experience. 
He said, I don't want you just to know about the love of Christ. I want you to experience it down deep uh, in your heart. And the Old Testament use of heart is the word bowels. He's like, what? I mean, I know, it's in the Bible. He goes, you know what? I want you to feel it in your gut. <laughs> I want it to get down deep. So yeah, you know Jesus loves you. But when's the last time that the, the truth that Jesus loves you went so down deep to the deep places? Those, those hurts, I mean, way down deep and, and set you free. When's the last time you experienced the every good thing that is in us? Do you realize what is in you, church? Think about, meditate on the every good thing that is in us. That the gospel is, the holiest one of all was offended. You know who he was offended by? The answer is us, okay? We are, let me ask it again. Who offended God? Us, we did. We looked at God and said, I don't want your love. I want your grace. We walked away from it. So the holiest one of all is offended the greatest way. So listen, God has been sinned against more than we'll ever be sinned against. And yet he forgives. And yet he shows grace. Yet he shows mercy. And so he said, listen, so much so that I'm not going to say, you got what's coming to you, go to hell. He says, I'm going to take your place. Put skin on. I'm going to walk your streets. I'm going to live for you all the ways you mess this up. I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to crawl up on your cross and I'm going to substitute myself. I'm going to die. What God demanded, He provided for us in the gospel. So the essence of sin is we have substituted ourselves for God. So I want to call the shots. I want authority. And the essence of the gospel is that God has substituted Himself for us, taking our place. Bearing the wrath we deserve so that he could forgive you and still be just. So that he could look at you and say, yeah, you're guilty. But if you will own that, bring it into light, I will wash it away. Do you realize that's what's happened to you in the gospel? That you're forgiven. He doesn't hold it against you. He looks at you and you're fully covered by his blood. The righteousness of Jesus is placed on you so that he, can, he delights in you. You're his loved son and daughter. He really is your father. He loves you. He's forgiven you. That is the good news of the gospel. God absorbed our sin on himself. So, how can we not forgive others? Forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. How That as is important. How did God forgive us in Christ? Recklessly fully, extravagantly, beautifully, holding nothing back. That's how God forgave you in Christ. So he says, if you've experienced that, how can you not, how can you not extend that to someone else? So number three. Oh my goodness, the rest of these will be quick. Restoration is choosing uh, to absorb the cost of another's sin by giving up our right to hurt those who hurt us. You see that? I'm absorbing it on myself. So that I, you don't you hurt me, but I'm not going to hurt you back. Accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Listen, church, we are never more like God than when we forgive, because God forgives. So forgiveness is saying you've wronged me. Somebody's going to pay for that wrong. Either I force you to pay for it for the rest of our lives by avoidance or aggression, whichever one it is, or I'm going to absorb that cost on myself. I choose to pay the price that you should pay. That's what forgiveness really is. It's not just a sweep it under the rug. It's not just act like it didn't happen. It's dealing with it to the point that we are absorbing it on ourselves. So real quick, forgiveness is choosing to view others through the lens of God's truth rather than our emotions. 
verses 10 through 11 says, basically he tells Paul, tell, Paul tells Onesimus, listen, Onesimus has been changed. <laughs> he's met God. He's no longer the same. So he said, hey, if God can forgive him, so can you. You view that man through the lens of truth rather than how you feel. And the truth is that he is restored and forgiven and free and reconciled. So you treat him that way. Second, forgiveness takes ourselves out of the center and embraces God's purposes for all people. Basically, he says, hey, I'm doing this, Philemon. I could keep him and he could do ministry, but I want to see him restored to you. So what Paul's like emptying himself out of this, saying, hey, he's going to have a purpose. If I don't choose to forgive this guy, listen, he's going to be hindered in his ministry. You're going to be hindered in your ministry. I'm going to be hindered in my ministry if we don't make this right. So he's sending him back. So listen, if we refuse to forgive, it's like a chain holding us back. We see all God has for us, and we want to get to it, but every time it's like a dog chasing a car, you know, on a leash, and he catches a hold of it, just jerks him back. That's what unforgiveness does. It's what bitterness does. Is you're just limited. It's always going to hold you down. Then it says, forgiveness, trust God, makes no mistakes. I want to read this one. It's so beautiful. Verse 15. For this perhaps is why that he was parted from you for a while, that, he, that you might have him back forever. You know what he says? He says, hey, I know this really, really stinks, and it wasn't ideal, and he sinned against you. But what, just maybe, just maybe, that the reason he left was so that he would meet Jesus. <laughs> Doesn't that put it in perspective a little bit? Paul goes, hey, what if the reason this guy, this happened to you, was so that he could meet Christ and be restored in a deeper way? So, so often we get so wrapped up in all of our past hurts that what if, just what if, that God has a bigger purpose in our lives? What if we trust that God, not what if, he does. What if we say, God, I trust that you make no mistakes. This happened to me, and it's happened to me, it's for my good. And then he says, I want you to take him back, not just as a bondservant, but as a beloved brother. I want him to be restored in a deeper way than happened before he sinned against you. He's not just going to be your slave anymore. You take him back as a brother. So listen, forgiveness seems like death because it is. We are absorbing the cost on ourselves, choosing to let that person go free. And it feels like death at first, (laughs) and it is. But the end is life, it's resurrection. It's to say there's a death of intimacy with one another, there's a death of intimacy with God that comes on the backside of being sinned against and forgiven than if we never would have been sinned against in the first place. God restores all things, Amen? amen? That's what he does. So, if you'll bow with me uh, and close your eyes, we want to deal with this. Um, and we're going to sing a song, and I know we're running behind. We'll go through qu- this quickly. But listen, I, I want, do not want us to walk away um, without really letting this get down in the deep places, underneath the iceberg, if you will, to the who we are in Christ. He goes on, and Paul, basically, the, the picture is, is this restoration. It echoes a bigger story than our own. Paul says, hey, Philemon, you treat him like you would treat me. If he has a debt, I'll pay it. And what Paul's doing is he's acting as if he's in a Christ-type role. He's being the mediator. And he's saying that when we forgive, it is showing this magnifold beauty of the gospel in ways that nothing else can. To say, I'm going to step in and absorb this wrong on myself so that I might reflect Christ, who's cried out from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That's our Jesus. And when we forgive those who do not deserve it, we are being 
showing the watching world the gospel. If we choose not to forgive, what are we saying about the gospel? So, will we be so motivated by the beauty of Christ that we do so in community? He names off all these people and says, hey guys, I'm coming for you. I'm coming to visit you. It's as if he's saying, hey, if you don't listen to this, I'm going to know. So a lot of this is saying, you can't do this apart from community. Say, I need to surrender to this church and say, I'm not going to keep myself at arm's length. I'm going to go all in. Yeah, even giving you the ability to hurt me because that's what the bride of Christ does. And when you do hurt me, I'm going to forgive you as as God has forgiven me in Christ. I'm going to absorb it for the sake of our, our relationship, for the sake of the glory of God among the nations. It's a community thing. We can't do this in the dark. So get in the light. God's not telling you to do this on your own. So listen, all of us are Onesimus. Every single one of us. Some of you cannot forgive because you've never experienced the forgiveness of God. So today, can I invite you to that? Have you ever come to a place where you've seen yourself as a sinner against God who's in need of His forgiveness and said, nothing I can do, only the grace of Jesus can forgive me of my sin and reconcile me back to God? Because listen, if you've never done that, you are right now an enemy of God. You're apart from Him. You can't know Him. Nothing you can do can fix that. Nothing you can do can make that better. But what you can't get to God, God came to you. And he said, I'm going to take your place. I'm going to pay what you should have paid so that you wouldn't have to, so that you can be restored. Have you ever received that forgiveness? So the invitation is come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Will you turn from your sin and self and trust this Jesus? You can trust this man. You can trust him. Some of us need to stop running and receive his love for the first time today. All need to ask the Spirit to reveal to us areas where we have sinned against others and to have the humility to make it right. Will you do that? Ask the Spirit, how have I sinned against somebody? And would I be so bold like Onesimus was to own it and to even call them up, sit down face to face with them and say, brother, sister, I'm sorry. I've wronged you. I've had bitterness against you. Will you forgive me? Could you imagine a revival that might break out if we were to take that seriously? All of us are Philemon. Some of us need to admit how affected you are by the wounds of your past. Deeply. You need to meditate on God's grace for you in Christ. You need to choose to begin this painful journey of forgiveness, to begin to walk in freedom from bitterness. Will you do that today? Give him your hurts and say, God, will you heal me from this? Can I forgive this person? Can I pursue this person? Listen, all of us need to be Paul, truly seeking restoration from one another fighting for that in this body of Christ. Do not let any root of bitterness keep us from all that God is for us in Jesus. So we're going to sing this song. We're going to remain seated and spend this time in prayer. Maybe you need to get up and walk across this room and do that right now. Maybe you need to do it after the service, call some people up. But we're going to sing this beautiful song. Come to the altar. His loving arms are open wide. Receive the forgiveness of Jesus today.